0: One of the main themes we've seen is that there's this chasm, there's this gap between a holy God and an imperfect people. So as we prepare to hear from God through his word, we need God's help to reflect the glory of Christ. He's given us grace, but we need his grace to reflect his glory. So please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your grace, the unmerited favor you've given us, not by our works, by our merit, but through the work And through the merit of Jesus Christ alone, through his sinless life, his death on the cross, in our place for our sins, bearing your holy wrath, the anger and the shame once and for all on the cross for us. So we give you thanks. And it's by his resurrection that we can come to you, that you've given us power to turn from sin and to turn to you. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who intercedes with groanings tooted for words, creation groans. We see the pain and the effects of our sin. We as Christians who have put our faith in Christ, we groan. Thank you that your Holy Spirit groans and you give us words to pray, even when we don't know how to pray as we ought. And Lord, I, I confess, I don't know how to pray right now as I ought. So would you fill our hearts with your spirit? Show us the glories of Christ that we could hear from you this morning through your word. Pray for Pastor Justin, that as he preaches your word, that he would preach your words, that he would be preaching what he's received. He's received the glories and beauties of Christ. And may he preach that to us. And may we have hearts to be shaped by your word this morning. We pray for our kids that their hearts would be shaped by your word this morning and that those teaching our kids would be reflecting the joy that we have in Christ. So Lord, help us to live out our identities in Christ. You've given us a high standard, but thank you you've given us grace to walk in light of your grace. So would you help us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: If you were to write a book about leadership, what content would you include? Like what chapters would be in this book on leadership? Would you open with a chapter defining leadership, maybe giving some good and maybe some bad examples about leadership? Or maybe you'd have a section on Uh, character. Like, who are you as a leader? And you would talk about how, as a leader, you need integrity. How, as a leader, you need to have uh, strength and decisiveness. Would you include chapters on a skill set for leaders? Maybe how to lead a meeting, or how to cast vision, or how to recruit people. Would you, lastly, have a chapter on, I don't know, mourning? Like, how you should mourn or maybe not mourn for family members that passed away. Would you have a chapter on Marriage, for example, who you could and could not marry. Those last two, at least for my ears, feel kind of unique. I've never specifically seen that in a book only on leadership. But in our text this morning, God is going to talk to the spiritual leaders of his people, the priests. going to actually identify and talk about mourning, how you grieve, and marriage. So for God's perspective, this is really important, and we're going to think about why that is so important. As has been mentioned, we're continuing our series of the book of Leviticus. This week we find ourselves in chapter 21. If you want to turn to that, that I would encourage you to. We're going to um, walk through the text at a pretty brisk rate, and it won't all be on the screen, so i Leviticus 21. And as we begin walking through Leviticus 21, the big question I want to ask at the beginning, just to get a framework and a sense of what this chapter is about, is what word did you hear repeated in the text that was read this morning? Verses 1 to 4. Because that's kind of really important as we think about these leadership qualifications for these spiritual leaders for God. I'll give you a hint. It's in verse uh, 1, and then it's repeated in verses 3 and 4. Let me read it again. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, A priest not, may not make himself ceremonial unclean for any of his people who die. I gave you a little bit of a clue there. It's that word unclean. In verse 1 you see it, in verse 3, and in verse 4. And so that tips us off to something that we've seen over and over and over again that has, again, already been said this morning. The idea that God's people, particularly these spiritual leaders, these priests, need to guard themselves from being unclean. Because God is a holy, pure God, and so the people that are ministering before him need to reflect something of that. So watch out, he says to the priest, that lest you become unclean. And specifically, here's how you guard yourself against uncleanliness. Well, what is how? There's two themes, we've already mentioned them, for how God is going to dictate that the priest in chapter 21 remain clean. The first is the idea of mourning. Mourning of how you as priests grieve. And it's different than some other people around them. Specifically, if you skim verses 1 to 6, you'll see that God says to the priests, particularly in verse 1 and 2, a priest must not make himself ceremony unclean for any of of his people who die. In other words, you can't have contact with people that you know, that you love, that you care about who die. You can't have contact with them, you can't touch them, because remember earlier, that would make you unclean, except, and then he gives some exceptions here, A very close kid, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a brother, an unmarried sister. For those people, you can make yourself unclean. But anyone outside of that that circle, you cannot touch, you cannot uh, attend that. You have to make yourself clean by not going and having contact in that context. Now, why? Why does God highlight mourning here? Because, again, from our opening discussion, that seems kind of an odd thought. Like why for these spiritual leaders does how how you mourn why does that even matter? Even without knowing the cultural context, you can probably venture a pretty smart guess. The reason is these people, these priests, these leaders need to be set apart from how the pagan cultures around them mourn. So for example, one scholar writes, treatment of dead bodies as impure contrasts with the Egyptian belief The realm of the dead was divine, holy, and pure. So you need to be different than how the Egyptians view it, okay? Specifically, we didn't read this, but we'll read it now. Verse 5, priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beard or cut their bodies. Again, we're thinking, what? And again, even without knowing the cultural context, you can probably discern why there's that prohibition here for priests. Again, Another scholar writes this, shaving the head was forbidden along with other pagan mourning practices. So it seems like culturally, if you were a pagan and you were mourning, you would do some of these things. Further, this author writes, also, this was also prohibited because defacing the body in any way impaired its perfection and violated the idea of holiness. So you're seeing that there are these prohibitions for how the priests, how the spiritual leaders mourn because they need to be Pure. They need to be holy. They're set apart. They're not like the pagans around them. They're not even like some of the Israelites. Right? And if you're an average Israelite, you could mourn, you can have contact, you can go to the funeral of someone. But if you're a priest, even that is prohibited, unless they're this inner circle of kin. The second topic that the text is going to focus on, God says, Hey, watch out how you mourn, spiritual leaders, priests. The second is the idea of, of marriage. He speaks in verses 7 and 8, and I'll just read verse 7, they must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorce from their husbands because priests are holy to their God. And you might be wondering, well, again, why does this matter? Well, some ideas could be, well, in marriage you're one flesh, and so this idea is that uh, your, your spouse as well needs to be holy because you're one flesh here. You need to be blameless before God. Later on in the text, you'll see that there's this idea of not wanting to defile offspring, So, to preserve the integrity of the sacred light of descendants, even the marriage itself must be kept to the highest standards here. So, you see mourning and you see marriage as as dictated by God for how these priests are to live. But why? Why are priests held to this high standard in terms of even mourning and marriage? Well, you find out in verse 6, and again, even without looking, you probably know, but let's just make it explicit. In verse 6, the reasons given. They must be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. Why? Because they present the food offerings, the sacrifices to the Lord, and the food of their God, they are to be holy. In other words, again, another scholar writes this, they are in effect a substitute for God among the people. Like other living offerings presented to the Lord, the priest had to be free from physical and ceremonial blemishes. Do you remember when the sacrificial system was described earlier, you bring animals that are uh, without blemish. And so in the same idea, the priest himself must also be without blemish. And so there's that picture here of, of entering into God's presence, you therefore also need to be without blemish. But the qualifications get even higher in verses 10 and 15, 10 to 15. Because thus far we've been talking about the average priest, if you will. In verses 10 to 15, it gets ratcheted up even more because we're talking about the high priest. Now remember, the high priest is that one priest who one day a year would go into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins both of himself and the nation. We talked about that recently, the day of atonement. There's this one high priest. And accordingly, the qualifications for him are even more stringent. Let's just read it. The high priest, and as I read it, see if you can determine how it's even more stringent for him. The high priest, the one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured on his head, who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkempt, tear his clothes. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God, I and the Lord. The woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people, so that he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes him holy. Did you hear it? Did you hear how the the qualifications for the high priest are even higher? For example, for mourning, the text makes it clear. Even for a mother or father high priest, you cannot have contact. Or for who you marry, the text makes it even more stringent. You must not marry uh, even a widow, must be a virgin. Here's the point. There is a high cost to leadership that you see delineated here in this text. You can't act like the people around you, priests. You can't mourn like, certainly the pagan cultures, as I mentioned earlier. You can't even mourn like Joe Israelite. You're a priest, you're set apart. You can marry only this type of woman. And we haven't even talked about the implications for children as seen in verse 9. And so, that's the idea, the weight of chapter 21, is that there is a weight to leadership for the priest and certainly for the high priest. Now, our posture today would be like, okay, okay. Things are different now in light of Jesus. And you're right. Jesus is our great high priest And it's interesting, think about his lineage. Do you remember opening chapter in Matthew? In his lineage, you find out that he is descended quite far back, but still nonetheless from Rahab, who was a prostitute. Huh. And it's interesting because it's typical for Jesus, because you see that her uncleanness does not pollute, if you will, Jesus, but rather his holiness radiates so powerfully out that it overcomes her sin. And you see that in the Gospels, right? Jesus touches the unclean, but instead of himself becoming unclean, he makes that person clean and heals them. Like, There's a whole other talk bound up there. But you see that there, Jesus is our great high priest, and so the the temptation would be to be like, okay, yes, we've seen this a long time ago, that's what it was, but now it's Jesus, we can totally ignore this text. Before we jettison it so quickly, however, I want to suggest two principles that still are relevant today. Principle number one. All Christians are called to spiritual influence in the world. Let me try to tease this out. What I mean by this is this. um, There are not two leagues or levels of Christians. For example, if you ever played youth sports, there's like the rec league and the travel league. The rec league, you know, we're just for fun. Uh, We're showing up when we can. We don't even keep score. We're basically in it for the snacks. Travel league, oh, Travel league, you pay more money, you have more practice, more focus, more, it's more serious. You're expected to show up for all your practices, all your matches, all your games, and there are many, and they are not local, they are travel, hence part of the name. you got to be there early, you absolutely keep score and statistics, and you have standings, you maybe have a tournament, and there's no snacks. Sometimes Christians say, you know, I'm just a rec league Christian. I just show up when I can, when it's convenient. I'm not keeping score. I'm not really monitoring like, accountability or growth or how I'm doing. I'm just, yo. Know, I'm kind of here for the snacks, basically. Well, hopefully you sense that's a misnomer, right? God calls all Christians to that same level of holiness. In other words, here's what I don't want us to, to do in response. Okay, yo, know, the, the leaders are called to holiness, but I'm not like a leader in the church, And so therefore, since I'm not a pastor, it's okay for me to look at porn. Or I'm not a deacon, I'm not an elder, therefore I don't really need to pray. All are called to some sense of spiritual influence, or all Christians are called to the same level of holiness. Like, I don't want to delineate tears, I'm like, yo, okay. Yes, there's maturity levels and all that, but there's still that same level of expectations of faithfulness and holiness so I don't want us to just push this out and be like, well, that's totally irrelevant to me. I'm not in spiritual leadership. Well, you have spiritual influence in the world if you follow Jesus. And in fact, you're actually a priest too. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. In First Peter, the New Testament, Peter writes, You, Christian, you, church, are a chosen people, a holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So you actually kind of are a priest. Or think about this in 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to the exhortation, the call for Christians here. It's not like yo, know, you're just a normal Christian, just you know, coast. Listen. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Okay. Beautiful gospel, truth. In Christ, you are redeemed from your sin, your past has find your present. Da-da-da. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Oh, that's great. Praise the Lord. Okay, here we go. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. As we walk through this, think, Christian, what is the exhortation? What is the call in your life? I'll give you a clue. Here's the first one. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, of defines what that looks like. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Let me just summarize this. If anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. Anyone. Okay, so if you're a Christian, we're talking here. We're not just talking about uh, people in vocational ministry with a title. If you're in Christ, if you turn from sin, turn to this is for you. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation, according to Paul. You have been committed, uh, you've, he's committed to you the message of reconciliation. You are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So Peter reminds us you're a priest, Paul reminds us you're an ambassador of Christ. So even if you don't have a title per se, you have spiritual you have spiritual influence, and you're called then to that same level of holiness. Significant point number one. At the same time, some are called to spiritual in leadership in the church. The first idea: all Christians are called to spiritual influence in the world, but of course, some are called to spiritual leadership in the church. For example, Ephesians four. Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Here's the point. God gives the church different offices. For example, he has called some people to be pastors and teachers. So we're not pushing back against that role and that responsibility. Yes, of course, some are called then to spiritual leadership within the church. And like the priest in Leviticus 21, there is a weight, there is a cost to leadership. So right now in the life of our church, it's kind of a special time because we are reestablishing the elder board. And elders are like spiritual leaders in the church. And so let's think just for a little bit about what are elders? What are the qualities then of an elder? First, Worldly standards for leadership are not necessarily a one-to-one correlation to qualifications for an elder. What I mean is, even if you're a great, you know, successful entrepreneur, it does not necessarily mean you're going to be a good elder. Even if you're a great military general, it does not necessarily mean you're going to be a great elder. Even if you're a social media influencer, does not mean you're necessarily going to be a good elder. God gives us qualifications for an elder, for a spiritual leader in the church, and one of the classic places to look is 1 Timothy 3. Let me read this and then make one observation about the weight and the cost of spiritual leadership today. Paul writes, here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, again, could be synonymous with elder, desires a noble task. Now, the overseer or elder is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, but not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may be conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. And finally, verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into devil's trap. So You can sense that same vibe of a high degree of holiness. I love that umbrella term in the opening verse. He must be above reproach. The sense in which for an elder, if you hear something kind of questionable, you're like, really? Like That doesn't seem like that, what that person would do. That's kind of the vibe overall, and there's many different aspects there. We're not going to unpack all those different aspects. I want to just unpack one. That I think shows something of the, the weight or the cost of leadership. It's something that I s- skim over pretty readily, but I was reminded of it recently. It was in that last phrase in verse 7. I don't know if you caught it. I'll show you again. He must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace. And here it is, and into the devil's trap. For our membership class, we read a little book called I'm a Church Member. And there's a section, I think it's section four in which the author talks about this regarding elders and pastors, that phrase, into the devil's traps. Here's, here's what he says. A trap is something that is set intentionally. It means that the devil has devised a plan to bring the pastor, or you could say elder, down. He has set a trap. It means that the devil sees the pastor as a threat, and one of his highest priorities is to take him down and take him out. The text is clear. The nature of this trap will be temptation or the pastor's reputation be harmed. And let's be honest, the quickest way to destroy an organization, the quickest way to destroy a church, for example, is to take out a leader. That's a biblical principle. Jesus quotes it as well. It comes from Zechariah 13. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so you put this together with 1 Timothy 3 and you think about Zechariah 13 and you think about elders and pastors have a target on their back. They're targeted by the devil. He tries to entrap them and ensnare them to wipe them out to take down the church. And sadly, if you watch the news, this happens, and it destroys churches. I wonder what it would be like, I'm trying to imagine what it's like for military families to send off a father or mother, a son or daughter, or just a family member into war. I think on one hand there would be a lot of celebration and joy even in the sense of, hey, you're doing your duty. You're doing what you've been called to do, being in the military, what you've been equipped to do. But at the same time, I wonder if there's also a sense of maybe a bit of fear and trepidation and sobriety. Because, yes, you're doing what you've been called to do, what you've been equipped to do, going to the front lines, for example. But at the same time, you know that your son or daughter, father and mother is going to see things that are very challenging to see, experience things that are even more challenging, and that the whole time on the front lines you're going to be in the crosshairs of the enemy. There's a sense in which I feel like that's kind of where we should be at, have that same posture as we move towards establishing an elder board. Like we are if if the elders get approved on November 13th, we're going to have a a legit combined service that we haven't had for years, in which we ordain our elders. I heard we're having lunch and a cake, and it's just going to be that whole blowout celebration as we move towards establishing elder board. And we've talked about why that's important. That's God's design. And it's a, it's, a, it's a moment of celebration, and we should be. At the same time, there is a cost and a weight to leadership that we ought not ignore It's not just fun and games in spiritual leadership. Every every leadership role in any organization has challenges. I'm just talking about spiritual leadership. That's where our text leads us. And as we celebrate having elders, we have to also remember that, yes, they're doing what they've been called to do and equipped to do. God set them up for this time. Get that? But as you enter into spiritual leadership, as you enter into being an elder, 1 Timothy 3 reminds us that there is a a target on your back now. The devil will seek to take you out because you strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You will have this enemy that prowls around and tries to destroy you. And so we should be celebrating this, but there also ought to be a sense of sobriety, a sense of weight to this, a sense of, okay, it's on. There is a cost to spiritual leadership. Now, we don't need to be fearful. We do need to be prayerful. In fact, that fourth section in the book, I'm a church member, ends with this pledge, I will pray for my pastor, or again, you could expand it, I will pray for my elders every day. And hopefully you see the reason why, because there's a weight to and a cost to spiritual leadership. So we as a church need to be praying for leaders, because you strike the shepherd, and if you're successful, the sheep will be scattered. We need to be praying because we saw in 1 Timothy 3, the devil seeks to trap spiritual leaders. We saw it in Leviticus 21. Again, I know it's different, but there's a weight, there's a cost to spiritual leadership. There's a cost, we didn't unpack it a lot, there's a cost to the family as well. So therefore, we need to heed that uh, pledge that you make when you kind of walk through that book, I will pray every day for those in spiritual leadership. One last thought. Our great high priest, Jesus, was targeted by the devil, clearly. And he was trapped. He was killed. But that trap didn't ultimately ensnare him. Uh, He rose again, conquering sin and death. And so we don't need to be fearful. We need to be prayerful. Also hopeful because we know that because Jesus conquered sin and death, that trap from the enemy didn't keep him down. Yes, there are traps that are targeted towards the church, but ultimately, because Jesus conquered the greatest trap, namely death, those ultimately are only speed bumps. And the church will be victorious by God's grace. Victory is assured. Let's pray together. Father, there is a weight to spiritual leadership. We saw that in Leviticus 21. We feel that even today from 1 Timothy 3. Father, would you both give us a sense of that weight as we think about moving towards elders, as we think about the places that we have influence, as we recognize the spiritual landscape of reality. And would you help us, Then would that drive us then to greater trust, hope, and humility before you? And that as we lean on you, the great shepherd, the great high priest in Jesus, that we would not be fearful. That though there may be arrows flung from the bow of the enemy, our shield of faith would extinguish them. And that your church would continue to go forth uh, loving and serving the nations. Lord, help us to be mindful of that, that we are prayerful, even as we're hopeful as well. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans